Good morning, Willowburn. Hope you're doing well. That's good. Um, I was supposed to bring this message several weeks ago, but um, yeah, things got muddled up and I went away and stuff happened. So anyway, this is the 12th in our Revelation Do These Words series. So if you want to head to Revelation chapter 6, that's where we'll be spending pretty much all our time today. Um, but before we do that, um, since we have had a bit of a break, I'd like to just remind you of the guiding principles that uh, we're using um, as we go through Revelation. So Revelation's a pretty big book, there's a lot of stuff in it, and it's very open to interpretation because it is prophetic. It hasn't actually happened yet, so we can't say for sure exactly what is going to happen, when, where, how, or to whom. But we can do some of the things that it says. Uh, we can actually apply to our lives today some stuff. So we came up with four guiding principles, the preaching people of Willowburn, um, that we go, we prepare all of our messages in this series according to. So I'll just quickly remind you of those. Number one, we want to do the words of the prophecy of Revelation. Number two, we want to rely on supernatural help of the Holy Spirit to know and do the words of the prophecy. Three, we do not want to underinterpret or overinterpret any of the words of the prophecy. We don't want to get stuck in a particular interpretation and lose the practical application. And finally, four, we want to seek the meanings for Revelation and its applicability to us from other parts of the word. So to be intra-word, if you like. Okay, so yeah, we're all, all of us that preach here at Willowburn are preparing our messages according to those four guidelines. Thanks, um, Knowles. Um, but if you hear something you don't agree with or you're not sure about or you just want to know more, feel free to question us. Come and ask us. Cross-reference it, study it yourself, get into the Word. That's the best way you can find out stuff. So, get together with someone else from church to chat about it. Bask in the living words of King Jesus for yourself. So, that's the intro. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Uh, dear Lord and Holy Father, thank you so much for your people, your church, and, yeah, the opportunity, the privilege to be here today and bringing your Word to them. Just really help me, Father. This has been a really tough passage to prepare to preach, and... Um, there's a lot of stuff in it. It's so easy to go down rabbit trails. So please help me to stay on track and help your people to stay on track. Help us to feel the tug of your spirit um, and let me only say things which are coming from him to them. Amen. Okay, I'm going to have a drink. Thank you, Knowles. Okay, Revelation 6. Follow me along or just read it and don't listen, whichever you want. I'm going to kick that over. Uh, Revelation chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then one of the four living creatures said in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. He rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. Then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Then the lamb opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth, as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide from us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? So, as I said, there's a whole lot in there and there's a whole bunch of topics you could get stuck into, you could get bogged down. There are people that have spent months, years doing sermon series on this chapter alone. We're not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to try not to give any specific interpretations of anything here, but rather look at overall themes of the passage and try to draw out some practical points. Okay? I may diverge into interpretation just once, and you'll have to forgive me for that. So, three main themes that I notice. God slash Jesus is totally in control of the events of this chapter. The judgments are just, appropriate, and necessary for the kingdom of God to be established. And the people of God are always provided for. Those are the three main themes that I see repeated. And each of those leads to a practical application, which I'll give you later. But for now, let's just roll on through the passage. I'm going to move fairly quickly. Um, because I want to spend a lot more time at the end than at the beginning. So, the seals, not the ones that go, or, or, or. Anyway, some people here really requested that I put up a slide of the King of the South being a big seal. Anyway, it didn't happen, for obvious reasons. So, the seals, the first one. The rider. Okay. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So he will rule, sometimes through peaceful politics, sometimes through war. He has no authority of his own. It's given to him, his crown, represents that authority given by God, to serve as his hand of justice through conquest. Number two, the warmonger. He is given power to take peace from the earth. This implies that there is at least some peace on the earth. So the first guy must have established some peace. And this guy will take it away, the second rider. Once again, he is given something to symbolize the authority given to him and what he will do. It's a sword. His authority is that of a warlord bent on bloodlust and destruction. Like the first, nothing more than a tool of God's justice. Number three, the famine. Conquest usually causes civil unrest, eventually rebellion and more violence. Full-scale war breaks out, causing massive destruction and loss of life. The next step in the progression is an astronomical rise in food prices and a general unavailability of most consumable foods. Um, we see that in war over and over and over. So this rider, riding the black horse with his scales and the voices talking about a litre of wheat for a day's wages, three litres of barley for a day's wages, basically represents that there is going to be a lot of starvation. Food is going to be scarce, it's going to be extremely expensive, and people will become desperate. Starvation and disease, desperate people, more violence, more death. And number four, 
When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, there before me was a pale horse. His rider was named Death, Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Death is the ancient enemy of us all. Jesus is the only person in history who's ever beaten him, and that's why he's our only hope of escape. Um, some people go into a lot of detail about the colours of these horses and what they represent. I'm not going to do that, but I am going to make an exception for this one horse because it's translated here as pale. Um, the Greek word is actually the word chloros, which is where we get our chlorine, for like the pool chemical. Um, this horse is quite literally the sickly green colour of a rotting corpse. <laughs> green chlorine colour. Fairly disgusting. Death rides him, Hades follows him, a lot of people are going to die. Yet again, though, notice he's actually given this authority. He has none of his own. Death has no authority of its own. Remember back in chapter 1 of Revelation, we looked at a verse, and I think Ben brought it out. It might have been Adrian, too long ago. Uh, basically, Jesus says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. So no one can pass there without his consent. So that's the end of the four seals. I know I move really quickly. Not going into interpretation. <laughs> Sometimes these guys are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and as I said earlier, you could spend days extrapolating what the meanings are. There's a million possible meanings, possible interpretations, but my question is, is doing any of that helpful? Does that help you walk closer to Jesus? Does that make you more able to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbour as yourself? Maybe it does for you, it doesn't for me. So I don't bother with interpretation. I just go, look, what I can observe here is a few common themes. One, God is totally in control. There's an order and a structure that everything here follows. Every single one of them. And the order goes like this. The lamb opens a seal. Crack. Living creature calls out, come. A rider appears, is given authority and a symbol of that authority, and then leaves to carry out his purpose. So they have no authority of their own. They cannot even come out and start doing their thing unless Jesus actually gives them that authority by breaking the seal, letting the creature call come, and then giving them their gift to specifically go and do their purpose. This is especially true of the final horse. As I said earlier, Revelation 1.18, Jesus proclaimed, I'm the living one. I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. So no one is permitted to die without his consent. Number three, the common theme, third common theme I notice is, these horsemen are all carrying out God's judgment. They're not doing this of their own accord. They are actually released and sent by God to judge and punish the earth. This is all planned. It's all premeditated, and above all, it's all earned. The world deserves these horrific judgments for their ages of defiance, murder of Christ himself, persecution of his people, both Israel and the church. Think about even our modern day, Christians watching their children get butchered in front of them in Aleppo, in Syria. Little kids being raped in Palestine. The filthy porn industry and the worldwide sex trafficking that it creates, especially women and children. On the day of the wrath of the Lamb, this world will have no excuse before the righteous anger of a grieved God. How are we doing? Too fast? Good, because we're halfway through. Um, <laughs> so the fifth seal, I'm going to spend a bit more time on these two. When he opened the fifth seal, this is verse 9, I saw under the altar of the souls, sorry, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. 
Okay. What do you think is their motivation? Okay, so you're John, you're there, you're listening, you're seeing the seal opened and you hear these people cry out, how long before you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? What do you think is their motivation for saying that? Why do you think they're asking God to avenge them? Answers, please. Justice, yep. What else? What could be another possible motivation? Desperation? Wanting to be in the presence of the Lord rather than waiting? Yep. Want to see his kingdom fully established? Yep. This is a possible doorway to a lot of rabbit holes, and I don't want to go down them. But, um, ooh, hello. Um, I've heard some say this is a bloodthirsty prayer. How long do you avenge us? Not at all fitting for redeemed believers. They maintain that these people that say this maintain these saints should have had the attitude of Jesus or Stephen. When they were killed, they both said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so some people say these guys are a little bit weird, wanting vengeance. Um, I actually don't think that's the case. I think it's simply the martyred saints are asking for justice, as one of you has already said. When you appeal to God, like we just appealed to God to heal Peter's ear, right? So what characteristic of God are we appealing to there? Mercy, love, healing. God has other characteristics as well. Justice, righteousness, wrath against sin. And those are the things that they're appealing to here. There's absolutely nothing wrong in asking God to deliver on his promises. He has said, I will judge the world and I will avenge the blood of those that were slain in my name. So they're just appealing to the sovereign Lord, holy and true, to bring justice by destroying evil. Just as we might pray, let your kingdom come from you know, um, what's that prayer called? <laughs> Thank you, the Lord's Prayer. Just as we pray, let your kingdom come or deliver us from the evil one. And even the final longing prayer of Revelation itself at the very last chapter, verse 20 of chapter 22 says, come Lord Jesus. There's a real longing, a yearning for that. This is the same kind of prayer. It's not a, come on, do this. It's, please just do what you've said you'll do when the time is right. So God responds to them by giving them a white robe and he tells them to wait a little bit longer. So he doesn't say, no, don't question me. I'll do it when I'm ready. Have patience. He just says, guys, there's not enough of you here yet. Have a white robe and wait. There's more of you coming. More people are going to die in my name. And when you're all here, I want you to watch while I smash them. Basically, so these guys, we'll see these martyrs in their white robes again in Revelation, a number of times. Next week, actually, you'll see them again, so watch out for the white robes. See if you spot them when Adrian takes us through chapter 7. Okay, so that's fifth seal. Now, again, some common themes. God is in complete control. He set that number of people that would be killed for him at some point in time. Don't know when, but he knows it. He doesn't tell them. He just says there's not enough of you here yet. The number is not yet complete. Total control. Total justice. They're appealing to him to judge, to do what he said he'd do. And he provides for them. He gives them something and tells them to wait. Now onto the sixth deal. 
I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. So when the sixth seal gets broken, things just go crazy on earth. Huge earthquake shakes the earth. The sun turns black. The moon glows, dusky blood red. Stars fall like ripe fruit from a tree in a cyclone. And the heavens roll up like a scroll. We're talking global catastrophe. This is king tsunamis, islands and mountains crumbling and disappearing, massive tectonic movement, burning stuff coming down out of the sky. Bad, bad, bad. So the thing that stands out to me and is most impressive and most impossible to get my head around is the stars falling and the sky being rolled up. Okay? And this will be my one flight into interpretation. And I'm saying right now, this is a theory. It could be totally wrong. Don't take it as gospel. Get into the Bible yourself. Cross-reference everything. Check it out. So my theory is, well, first, I ask a question. How could this actually happen? How could the sky be rolled up? If it's referring to our physical atmosphere, every part of life on Earth would die. We all need oxygen. And if our atmosphere is taken away, we die. And yet, more stuff happens further through Revelation with people alive and running around living like they always have. So, perhaps it's not our atmosphere. Maybe it's space. Maybe all the stars fall and all the blackness is gone and there's still just this little bubble around Earth making sure that we live. Doesn't make a lot of sense scientifically. Who knows? Um, so I ask, what does this rolling up the sky mean? And I look to other parts of Scripture, um, following our guiding principles. There's at least two places in Scripture where the sky being rolled up is talked about. The first one is hundreds of years earlier. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 34, all the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens will roll up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from a vine, like shriveled figs from a fig tree. The whole chapter of 34 in Isaiah refers to the day of the Lord's vengeance. It doesn't say when or where or what it'll be, but it describes very, very similar imagery to what John says, almost exactly the same, even down to falling, fruit falling from a fig tree, which is crazy. It's amazing that Isaiah foretold this happening so long ago, before John lived, and then John himself was transported way into the future to see it happen, and yet they used the exact same imagery to describe what was going on. God is consistent. He's always in control and he will achieve his purposes right down to this last detail. The other place where the sky being rolled up as a scroll is talked about is in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. It says like this, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your word will never end. This is a direct quote from Psalm 102, by the way. Um, he's quoting the psalmist who said the same thing many, many years before. Again, a consistent pattern. So this is where I start to divulge into interpretation. <laughs> the English language has nowhere near the diversity of ancient Hebrew or even Greek. Um, there's a precision available in those languages to describe things which we simply don't have. And therefore, the word love, for instance, in our language, is translated from many different words in Hebrew and Greek. Another one that's translated is heavens. We get heavens right through the Bible, but it's actually translated from a bunch of different Hebrew and Greek words, which all mean slightly different things. I'm no scholar, but with the help of some good friends, I've been hashing this out, and 
we, we've identified at least four different kinds of heavens in the Bible. So this is things where our English word heaven is rendered, but it's actually referring to different things in Hebrew and Greek. The first one is simply our sky, our atmosphere. Um, that's used quite a lot in Genesis and also other places in the Old Testament. A second one is space, the great expanse of the universe is the heavens. And the third is the physical place where God dwells, the literal palace and throne room of the creator. That is referred to as the heavens. And finally, the fourth one is a kind of dimensional barrier, if you like, um, that hides the spiritual realms from our physical eyes. And David refers to that in the Psalms, and also so does Isaiah. It's this idea that um, your eyes have seen things we have not, uh, your ways are higher than our ways, and so on. Um, so those are just four possible interpretations of the word heavens. So when he's saying the heavens are rolled up like a scroll, which heavens is being referred to? Any ideas? What? Speak up. Huh? Number four. Thanks. I'm deaf today. Um, I don't know. Honestly, I don't think we can know. But I struggle to understand how Revelation can continue if this is our atmosphere. Like, how do people breathe? I struggle to understand if it's space in its entirety is just taken away. Um, maybe that's the truth. I don't know. But the reason I stick with the fourth one, um, that the physical, sorry, the dimensional barrier that blocks our eyes from seeing into the spiritual realms being taken away is because of the response of the people that follows. Look at verse 15. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand against them? That's a pretty drastic response. Everybody running and hiding, everybody trying to find a place to go. Um, yeah, okay, there's global catastrophe. We just talked about a giant earthquake and stars coming down and heavens being rolled up and moon going um, blood red and sun going black. If the stars come down, why doesn't the sun come down? It's a star. If a literal star fell to earth, think how big they are. Earth would be obliterated. So I think where he's talking about stars coming down, he's referring to something else, perhaps satellites, perhaps nuclear missiles, who knows? Perhaps a meteor shower. Anyway, it's going to cause a lot of strife. But when the sky is rolled up, something happens there to the people. Throughout the Bible, when God appears, there's a unanimous and highly appropriate response of people that love him. They fall on their faces and worship him. That's what people do when the glory of God is revealed. These people don't do that. They run and hide. Everyone, from the highest to the lowest. And why do they suddenly say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb? These are people that have been living without God. They don't acknowledge him. They've been defying him. But suddenly they attribute everything that's happening to him, to God. And they're trying to hide from him. So my theory, stress that word, is that this is a dimensional barrier that's being rolled up and ripped away so that people can literally see heaven. Far off, in the distance, in the sky, the place where God is. And the glory pouring out of that place literally causes them the craziest fear they've ever known. They attribute everything that's happening, all these catastrophic events, to the wrath of God that they can suddenly see. And they run and hide. The grim reality descends, they know their cactus. Perhaps an illustration might help. Um, again, this is all theory, so I could be totally wrong. But I think about, let's say you're going camping, all right? 
and you take your tent along and you're setting it up, you put the poles together, you put the mat down, you put the fly up and then you put the tent roof over the top. You peg it all down and you're set to go. You hop into bed that night and yep, everything's hunky-dory. Sometime during the night, a, a big wind comes up and rips off the tent covering and you're left with just the fly. Now, before that happened, inside the tent, your world was pretty small, right? You could only see up to where the tent blocked your view of everything else. The fly was there between you and the tent, but it didn't really do anything except keep the mozzies off. Once the tent part is ripped away and you're left with nothing but the see-through fly, suddenly your world expands massively. Suddenly you can see so much more. You can see the stars, you can see the trees, you can see everything, and you're getting rain in your face. Things have a huge clarity now. You're not part of a little tiny world. You're part of a massive, massive world, and it's suddenly become real to you. The first thing you might do is jump up and put your tent back together. But the first thing these guys do when that happens, when the tent, if you like, is ripped away, is run and hide. Sorry? <laughs> cool. So that was my one flight inter interpretation, and I could be way, way off. But the reason I did it is because having a bit more understanding about what's actually going to happen there and the response of the people helps me do something, helps me do these words. If that is true, if people are going to suddenly see Jesus in all of his glory and that is going to be revealed to them, it helps me because I can prepare for that. I can follow Jesus. I can teach others to follow Jesus. I can help people to be ready for when that happens so that they don't run and hide, they greet him with open arms. So, I can teach my children to follow Jesus. I'm really keen to be on his team when Revelation starts unfolding. Back on track, a few applications from the whole chapter. God is always in control. You see that right through here. Nothing happens without his say-so. First, the lamb comes and takes the seal, his, the scroll. He's the only one that's um, eligible to. Then, as he opens, not all at once, but one by one, the seals of the judgment of God, something happens. A procedure is set in motion. A living creature says, come. God gives them authority. They are given a token, a symbol of what their authority is, and they go out and do their thing. So God's never once surprised by anything that happens. He's totally in control. Because he's totally in control, we can follow him with confidence. We can put all of our trust in him because we have a certain hope that he will always do what he said. He's never been out of control. Secondly, because God is just, each of these judgments are well-deserved. He will destroy evil. So we should not cower from it. We should face it. Stand on his promises and know that even if our bodies are destroyed, he is faithful. We will stand with that crowd of white-robed martyrs saying, how long before you avenge us? And because God provides for his people, as he did for these guys, even in death, we can live without fear that we'll have his best for us. Even when we're persecuted, that's why our brothers and sisters in Syria can face their deaths, because they know God is faithful. They have no fear that he is going to take them home and he is going to provide for them. We're not forgotten, and even if we are destroyed, he still has a reward for us in death. Wait a little while longer. Not enough of you are here yet. So, my encouragement is, three applications. Follow God with confidence. Don't cower from evil, but stand against it. You've got a big guy behind you. And even when times are really tough, even if you're persecuted or even killed, stand for God, because he has provided for that also. So live boldly, speak and act justly, prepare yourself and your family, be ready for the return of the king. I'm finished.